Electric vehicle and battery company Tesla recently filed an application with the Texas regulatory authorities to build a battery-grade lithium hydroxide refining facility on the Texas Gulf Coast. That means Tesla has filed the initial paperwork required to build a lithium refining plant in Texas that would provide it, in the words of Tesla CEO Elon Musk, with a, quote, license to print money, end quote. Musk was being hyperbolic there, but not by much. This facility would be the first of its kind in North America and would allow the company to take raw lithium ore and convert it into a state that could be used in battery production. That processing capability has been an object of desire for Tesla since at least 2014, when it tried, unsuccessfully, to purchase a California-based lithium extraction startup called Symbol Materials for $325 million in Tesla stock. By all indications, Symbol, which was a relatively small company without a lot of demonstrated success, had a technology that allowed it to extract lithium at a scale and of a quality that would allow it to serve as the foundation of a U.S.-based lithium battery supply chain. The theory was that, as is the case with many complex technologies, if they could own as many steps along the way, from initial raw material sourcing or production all the way to the finished product at the other end, they could keep more of the money required to produce that finished product, because less of it had to be spent paying other companies to source and mine lithium, or refine that lithium, or convert the refined lithium into a battery of a high enough quality that it can be used in a high-end vehicle. This also gives them more control over their supply chain. There's less risk that a competitor will swoop in and pay their lithium supplier more money for first dibs on something, for instance, which makes their profit margins more consistent and secure and reassures their stockholders, which is good for business and for market valuation. Eventually, because Tesla saw the value here, but so did other investors, Symbol was able to up its valuation to about $2.5 billion, which in turn upped the acquisition price. The original $325 million turned into $1.6 billion, and at that moment in time, Tesla wouldn't have been able to afford such a steep price. Consequently, Tesla was unable to plug that hole in its supply chain, and Symbol went out of business. The company's lithium-related technologies were transferred to a new entity called Alger Alternative Energy, but there's no indication they've made any real headway in developing or selling their tech assets recently, despite the vast amounts of interest in this particular facet of the U.S.-based EV-related supply chain. That interest has been enough to keep several other approaches to mining the supposed minerals of the future afloat and moving forward, iterating rapidly, however. What I'd like to talk about today are two relatively new, but long speculated about, mining options that are finally seemingly coming to fruition, though whether they will be able to fill those market gaps anytime soon at least is still an open question. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. 
I've got two separate topics I want to look at today, and they both stem from the same collection of market necessities and near-future needs. So before I get into those articles and their topics, let's take a quick look at the larger context that is informing and feeding both of them. First off, we are in the midst of transitioning from one way of powering the world to another. Broadly, we are transitioning from using fossil fuels for heat and electricity to using an array of other sources like wind and hydro and geothermal and nuclear and solar. There are still holdouts who oppose this transition wholesale as there are ideological and economic and even technological incentives to do so. You maybe get more votes from certain demographic blocks and money from certain interest groups if you come out against shifting away from coal and oil. And many companies that rely upon those energy sources will tend to want to slow down this transition because the longer they can keep milking their existing fossil fuel-based assets and infrastructure, the more money they can make off of those assets before they become stranded, which basically means worthless and actually, in some cases, expensive to own. Liabilities, because they'll need to be sealed up and handled like possible sources of pollution and environmental damage, rather than as national security scale essentials. But despite those holdouts, this is a transition that is happening, and you can see its effects everywhere you look, even if these shifts sometimes seem to be moving incredibly slow, considering the scale of the climate-related changes we are also seeing more and more of these days. So that's a meta-issue informing this conversation. We're making this big transition globally, and for that to keep moving forward, we need all sorts of raw materials and goods refined from those materials to build solar panels and geothermal pumps and hydro dams and batteries. A lot of batteries. And second, because we're generating energy in new ways, but many of our new sources are intermittent, like turbines only generating electricity when the wind is blowing, and solar panels only generating electricity when the sun is shining, we need a whole lot of storage so we can tuck that energy away when it's being produced in bulk, so that it's available for use when the winds have died down and the sun has set. The current dominant materials-based paradigm for high-capacity, versatile battery storage is lithium. And though we've been mining lithium for use since the early 19th century, the lithium-ion battery, which is currently the most common and resource-intensive application for this material, aside from lithium's medical uses, was only invented in the 1960s, initially developed for NASA in 1965, and then refined over the next few decades until it became affordable enough, high-capacity enough, and less likely to catch fire in the 1990s, at which point it started to find its way into all kinds of consumer devices, especially small portable electronics like smartphones and laptops. And most electronics these days, if they contain a rechargeable battery, are probably using a lithium-ion battery. So this has been an important chemical element for some time now, but until the development of modern electric vehicles, which typically use a very hefty lithium-ion battery, weighing somewhere between 1,000 and nearly 3,000 pounds apiece, we've only needed relatively small quantities of this material. Today, though, as governments and companies around the world shore up their economies and supply chains to replace all vehicles with electric vehicles, and to swap out their entire fossil fuel-dependent infrastructural webs with electric versions of the same, 
the necessity for just gobs of lithium and other materials vital to the creation of these technologies, which enable the construction of all this stuff, has become borderline panicked. Again, at the base of the production chain for these sorts of materials, whether we're talking about electric vehicle batteries or the cable necessary to move electricity from one place to another, are substances that have to be mined, then refined, then turned into things, then shipped this way and that until they are where they need to be. That sets the stage for the two articles I'd like to start with today. The first comes from Interesting Engineering, and it's entitled, China Claims Discovery of a New Mineral on the Moon for the First Time. The Chinese National Space Program, or CNSA, has announced that it discovered a new lunar mineral, which it has designated Chang'e-site Y, in basalt particles collected on the moon by its 2020 Chang'e 5 mission, which returned lunar samples to Earth for the first time in about 40 years. This is the sixth new mineral discovered by humans on the moon. The other five were discovered and named by the U.S. and Russia and it reportedly contains helium-3, which is an isotope of helium that has two protons and one neutron, compared to the two protons and two neutrons contained in the most common earthly version of helium. Helium-3 was originally discovered in 1939, and it has since been speculated that it might serve as an energy source at some point, and more specifically, an energy source for the generation of fusion-based nuclear power which at the moment is not something that can be practically used for energy production. Interestingly, helium-3 is thought to be more prevalent on the moon than on Earth, and even more so in our solar system's gas giants. But since the moon is far, far closer than those other gas giants, and the moon is generally a tempting target for space exploration in general, both because it's close to our planet and because its gravity well is a lot less intense than that of Earth, which would make taking off in our rockets a lot easier and resource-sipping, the discovery of helium-3 up there has amplified speculation that we might be able to mine the moon for elements containing this possible fuel source, and then possibly, at some point, on the back of that resource extraction effort, set up the moon as a sort of space-age filling station, from which we launch most of our rockets and do most of our space-related assembling of things. That would make our space activities a lot simpler and cheaper once we got set up, and having an existing abundant natural fuel source increases that likelihood many-fold. The other article I'd like to talk about today comes from the New York Times, and it is entitled Secret Data, Tiny Islands, and a Quest for Treasure on the Ocean Floor. This piece is about a relatively obscure regulatory body called the International Seabed Authority, which recently gave the go-ahead to a Canadian corporation called the Metals Company to start mining portions of the Pacific Ocean floor for potato-sized chunks of minerals called polymetallic nodules. These nodules are lumpy little balls that have accumulated all sorts of metals, ranging from cobalt to copper to iron to manganese and nickel, along with small batches of rare earth elements over the course of millions of years. Billions of tons of these little lumps of metal are scattered throughout the world's oceans, with some areas like the Clarion-Clipperton Zone, which is an expanse of the Pacific Ocean that covers about 1.7 million miles, are especially densely covered with these nodules. 
But the metals company and a few dozen other corporations, mostly owned by governments at this point, hope to do is scoop up these nodules on a huge scale and mine them for their metallic wealth. That metallic wealth is going to be worth a lot of money, and that would have been true at any moment in history, but again, as I mentioned in the intro, we are at an unusual moment in which such resources are even more highly in demand than usual because of the transition we're going through, energy-wise. So the potential wealth is even more vast than it would have been a few decades ago. We need staggeringly vast quantities of these sorts of metals globally, and we need them now. The sea floor, then, is like a giant mine, and these little lumps of metal are just waiting to be scooped up by entities with the proper regulatory permissions to grab them. This company is trying to be the first to get started on that, aiming to get going in 2024, at which point their pre-operation experiments should be completed and submitted to the proper authorities, and at that point we could see a dramatic scale-up of their efforts, and those of competing companies and countries that are likewise aiming to optimize and expand their own deep ocean mining endeavors. All of which is arguably good in the sense that access to this mineral wealth should make the transition to full global electrification cheaper and easier, opening up a lot of the bottlenecks we would otherwise see. It could also make ground-based mining, which tends to disrupt or destroy all sorts of ecosystems, less necessary. On the other hand, this mining method will probably substantially disrupt and even demolish many deep-sea ecosystems. And these are ecosystems we are only just now beginning to explore and understand. We actually know more, in some regards at least, about the moon than we do about these portions of the world's deep oceans. So while this type of mining might seem to be a superior option, both economically and ecologically, it can also be argued that we don't really know how much damage we're doing because of all those unknowns. What we do know at this point is that there are species in these areas that are littered with all these desirable metal nodules that don't exist anywhere else on the planet. They're often quite old species that move very slowly and don't seem to change very much. So there's potentially quite a lot we could learn about how life has evolved on the planet and how remote ecosystems behave and change during periods of immense change on the surface if we were to invest more resources in studying these ecosystems rather than harvesting their mineral wealth, potentially hurting or disrupting them in the process. But again, this is being pitched as a necessary trade-off. The companies and governments wanting to move forward with this type of mining have said that if we don't mine these metals, we'll move too slow, technologically and structurally, transitioning away from fossil fuels too sluggishly to fend off the worst-case outcomes of global climate change, which would likely kill off all of those oceanic entities anyway, despite our best efforts to preserve and protect them. All because we couldn't build enough batteries and solar panels and the like fast enough. There's a lot to be worried about on both ends of this conversation, then, as new data keeps reinforcing how quickly we need to act if we're going to bulwark our societies and surviving ecosystems against what's coming, climate-wise. At the same time, though, many of our options, the means that we have to move more quickly to solve these problems, require that we sacrifice some of the very things we hope to protect like natural ecosystems that contain the resources we require to build the stuff that's supposed to keep the climate from changing so much that few species alive today will be able to eke out an existence on whatever our planet becomes. 
These dual explorations, way up into space and way down under the ocean, are also occurring at a moment of substantial geopolitical turmoil, which is possibly pro, possibly con, as lacking such disruptions, there's a good chance governments and other such entities would be more capable of justifying dragging their feet when they need to actually move fast right now on these types of issues. And they're less able to do that because everything has been upended. There's no way to cling to the previous norms because all of those previous norms have been blasted apart by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and all of the secondary consequences of that invasion, and by the seemingly never-ending cycle of climate-related disasters, from deadly, record-breaking heat waves around the world, to a significant portion of the entire population of Pakistan finding itself underwater over the course of just a couple of days. These issues, in turn, have triggered trends like friendshoring, which basically means governments trying to do more business with what they consider to be friendly governments, rather than governments that might become enemies at some point in the future. In practice, this means, in one example, the U.S. reorienting itself away from dealing with China and Russia and attempting to rebuild its global trade infrastructure with staunch allies and countries that seem likely to become staunch allies as the foundation. When these sorts of realignments and new polarities have emerged historically, a new period of exploration and exploitation has typically been necessary, as the two or more sides have had to replace earlier relationships with countries that are now on the other side of that dichotomy with new, fresh sources of raw materials and other necessities. So if the U.S. can no longer rely upon China to provide it with desperately needed rare earth elements and with the manufacturing capacity to produce all their bits and bobs they want to buy, it has to build new infrastructure to do the same to replace that capacity or help other friendly countries build new infrastructure and mines to provide the same. This trend tends to result in a lot of doubling up a lot of redundant infrastructure and over-harvesting and over-mining of resources, which can be problematic. The United States government recently released a list of 50 critical minerals that are considered to be vital to the country's next steps across a range of pursuits and priorities. They are essentially a national security issue. Other countries will likely do the same, which could create a new race for natural sources of these minerals, lest anyone be left behind and left without sources of tomorrow's permutation of oil and gas and coal, unable to compete globally, basically, because they lack one of those fundamentals. This schism may also lead to a lot of redundancy and over-exploitation of these resources. Deep ocean mining may impact how we live our lives in the near term, in large part because what we would be harvesting down on the ocean floor are familiar elements that we're already making use of. It's just a new, possibly incredibly abundant source of those resources. And it won't be cheap or easy to set up those new processes and supply chains, but the use cases for these resources that would be generated already exist and are expanding in scope incredibly quickly. Mining on the moon is a more speculative option at the moment, and it could represent a next-step version of the same, especially if commercial-scale fusion becomes a practical option for energy in the next decade or so. At that point, helium-3, for all we know, could be the next lithium, which itself is the next coal and oil and gas. 
At the moment, though, those potential efforts are predicated on several speculative leaps that are anything but certain. So while it's looking likely that we'll be getting at least some renewable energy-related resources from the ocean floor in the next few years, it could be decades before we see the moon as a resource to be exploited in the same way, if indeed that ever does become a practical reality. The book I'd like to recommend today is called From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life by Arthur C. Brooks. This was a very optimistic and uplifting book to me. As somebody who is rounding the bases into the later years of my 30s, I'm already looking forward to my 40s and 50s and trying to make sure that I do what I can to pave the way so that I enjoy those decades as much as I've enjoyed my 20s and 30s thus far. And I like the premise of this book, the idea that although our seasons of life may change and bring different types of weather and different realities to us, that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy them for different things. And it doesn't mean that there's not different strengths inherent in these different moments, different things that they prime us to do well. And I especially like the idea that as we get older, we become perhaps less competent with some things just because of the way that our biologies and neurologies work, but that also then sets us up to be much better at other things that we don't tend to be as good at when we are younger. The idea that we can move from one strength to another strength, or one arsenal of strengths to another arsenal of strengths, is heartening to me. And I think that's a nice way to frame the concept of aging overall, but especially if you're looking at aging as a collection of opportunities and perhaps pitfalls to try to avoid if you're able, as opposed to something that will inevitably be a negative experience. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of From Strength to Strength by Arthur C. Brooks. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of all of my work, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and the like. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.